Hello, and welcome to Cordial Concentrate with Brett Crosley and Tom Bennett, the 15-minute concentrated version of the podcast where we mix and contemplate cordial conversations about the world, the people in it, and their work. Hello, and welcome back to another episode of Cordial. In this episode, I chat to Brett Inder, who is a professor at Monash University. He's an economist with a special interest in data and econometrics. He has worked across different industries and markets. He has a particular interest in coffee and development. And he also has worked extensively throughout Timor-Leste, tracking the change in development after their revolutionary regime was toppled and they've had some stability over the past decade. So, Brett, welcome to the show. How are you? Good. Yes. Thank you. Thank you, Brett. Good to be here. So I think it'd be a good time now to talk about Timor-Leste. Um, Tom and I, when we were seeing in your lectures, you talked a lot about Timor-Leste and a lot of the data we used uh, in your Intro to Business Statistics course was about Timor-Leste and the data you, had, you and your research team collected over there. Am I right in saying that was one of the ways um, that you started operationalizing all your, your thinking and making an impact working with civil society and government? Yeah. Yeah, that, that's very true. So probably uh, the sort of, uh, in, a, in a nutshell, my niche in all of this uh, is that I've got some economics training, so I understand sort of the economic thinking, and I'm good with data. And again, if you're trying to make a difference to government policy or to civil society, then a very powerful weapon, that, a weapon for that process is evidence and data. And uh, so I, I found myself uh, uh, in the sort of early days of research just getting hold of data and actually shedding some light on what's actually going on with data um, and translating that into the public policy, into to some sort of response to the public policy issues that were being addressed at the time in that developing country setting. So that's kind of what I tried to find myself doing. Um, Timor-Leste came along really as an opportunity uh, uh, which is related to coffee, um, because for back in the late 1990s, I got involved in the fair trade mm-hmm. movement at the same time I was getting involved in um, uh, debt cancellation. And so I joined an organization that used to sell uh, tea from, or still sells tea from Sri Lanka, uh, imported from sort of a, a sort of local um, organization in Sri Lanka that, and the fair trade model being to try and really benefit the producers more than what you get out of mainstream production. Um, we also then started uh, importing some coffee from uh, East Timor, uh, from Timor-Leste back in the uh, mid-2000s. And so I got interested in understanding a little bit more about Timor-Leste and about the coffee industry there. So together with a, a friend, we uh, Travelled over to Timor Leste a couple of times and just tried to get a feel for the country and the, for the coffee industry and so on. Coffee is their largest export and it's the main income source for about half of the farmers in Timor. Well, you know, probably a bit, bit under half the farmers in Timor, so 20% of the population mm-hmm. uh, rely on coffee for their income. So it's a pretty sizable part of the economy. So. For me, my interest in fair trade leading me to wanting to buy coffee, um, leading to me to wanting to understand the Timorese economy is how I kind of got into a particular interest in Timor-Leste. Right. And 
that started back around about 2008, 2009, mm -hmm. not long after they just had a sort of a mini uh, sort of uh, crisis here. So I, I wanted to know in Timor Leste how the statistics have changed over the years that you've been collecting the data and watching the country get back on its feet. And then on the flip side of that, how has it changed visually? Do the numbers tell you that the progress, is, is it one for one? Like if the stats go up 10%, can, does it feel 10% better there? You know, having, you know, as you go back and you collect more data do, and you see the change, do, do the numbers and your lived experience link together? I know it's a tough question. But... No, that, that's a, it's a good question though. I understand what you're saying. And, and the short answer is as long as you... Uh, study and report the right numbers. The, the answer is yes. And a bit of, sounds and, like a cop out. Uh, yeah, that's right. <laughs> but um, there's two types of. Let me see. I don't. I don't want to bore listeners too much with a whole lot of um, technical details. It. But one of the challenges that you've got is Timor Leste is a um, resource dependent country. So their large part of their income and their budget is funded from the oil and gas activities that take place in the Timor Sea between Australia and uh, Timor. So from north of Darwin up to Timor, Elite Timor Leste is just a few hundred kilometres and there's lots and lots of oil rigs out there between the two. Um, and that uh, most of that is in Timorese territory or is effectively owned by Timor and they get a very large part of their income from that. And when I say most, um, essentially 90% of the government's budget is funded from the royalties and the taxes they collect from oil and gas. Wow. And the government's budget itself comprises of uh, 60 to 70% of GDP, of the total economy. Um, so put all that together, and, and, and there are sort of flow-on effects as well. Put all that together. Oil and gas is a major part of the economy. So what can happen is you can, you can have an increase in the price of oil um, around the world because of whatever reason. Um, and all of a sudden, GDP or sorry, the income of Timor Leste goes up, um, and uh, they look like they're doing better. But that is completely unrelated to the on-the-ground experience of people. Mm -hmm. I see. Because all that means is that there's a little bit more money in what's referred to in Timor as the petroleum fund, which is the sort of capital reserve that they store their money in, yep. and uh, uh, that doesn't make any difference to anybody. Uh, on the ground. It starts to get a little bit closer to people when it gets out of the petroleum fund and gets spent by the government on the government's activities, you know, day-to-day -day spending of government mm -hmm. can benefit people. But even then you get a few problems because uh, if they spend it on, um, you know, improving schools and education and health and uh, improving roads, then you start, yeah, you get some tangible differences and on, and on the provision of an electricity network. You know, so all of those things is is a, are exactly the things the government spends some of their money on, and they make a difference to people. So, I, the the short story of that is that there have been some significant improvements. But unfortunately, sometimes the government has also spent some money on um, projects which have not produced benefit. And this is one of the great challenges. Of, and uh, I often make the statement when I'm talking in Timor Leste and talking about the, the challenges, and um, is that I've never run a country before. <laughs> I, um, so your job is damn difficult. Yeah. <laughs> so don't any any time anybody criticises you, um, you can turn around to them and say, uh, well, you know, 
uh, you try. <laughs> See how you go. <laughs> so it is a very hard job. And so it's fair to say that sometimes the government has spent money on projects that have not been particularly beneficial to the, to the wider community. So we are in a world where cooperation is essential, and yet we build an economy around competition and purely on competition. So for us, trade that we're trying to model with our thing is that trade is a relationship. So we know the, the, the organisations and the people and to various extents, the farmers that we actually buy from in Timor-Leste. And so when we talk fair with them, it's about saying, well, how can we, as the people buying this coffee from you, buy the coffee in a way that is fair to you? <laughs> and so, for example, that involves us making a prepayment of some of the price of the coffee before the harvest season. Yep. Um, so typically a farmer will grow their coffee uh, during the wet season and uh, that's sort of November through to uh, March and then they'll harvest it about May or June and they'll export it. The company will export it in August, September. Uh, it'll arrive somewhere like Australia or Europe or whatever in November, December and then finally the coffee people get paid for the coffee, um, you know, the end of the year. So they've got six to 12 months to wait to get paid for their coffee. And that doesn't seem fair when these are poor farmers who uh, essentially haven't got enough money to feed their families. Mm -hmm. And in my first research project where we looked at coffee farmers, we compared the number of meals people were eating in February, which was before the harvest, to what they were eating after the harvest, after they'd received their payment. And an average household was eating 2.5 to 3 meals a day after they got paid and 1 to 1.5 meals a day during the wet season where they didn't have uh, access to money. So that's not great for kids' nutrition no. uh, where, you know, constant small meals is a much better nutritious way to eat, let alone what they're eating. But the fact that they didn't even have enough money to actually put meals on the table more than once a day is, is a problem. Yep. So our model is to say, we have a relationship with you. Let's work together. How can we make this relationship work well for you as well as for us? particularly given there's a power imbalance here. We've got a lot more money than you. So, yeah. okay, well, why don't we pay you a down payment on the coffee in February? So that's step one. So they get partial payment in February on the promise that they'll deliver us some coffee later in the year. And then, look, you know, you guys are not doing great financially. You've got extra costs because your roads are not very good and so on. So we'll pay a little bit more for the coffee than what you might get if you just sold to the local trader, for example, because we want to honour the fact that you put a lot of work into producing this coffee far more than, um, you know, the, than given the constraints that you yep. face. And so we pay a little bit more for the coffee. And uh, then we uh, say, well, you know, you guys would be great if you got some organic certification for your coffee. But I'll tell you what, there's a mountain of paperwork for you to do. Let's see if we can sit down together and help you with that paperwork. So we sit down and work our way through um, certification processes, which Lucky you. the Timorese coffee producer is never going to be able to do, but we Westerners can understand the bureaucracy a lot yep. better. So that's just what a, a friend would do for a friend. Um, in this case, it's a trading relationship, but the key word is it's a relationship. It's a relationship of mutual respect um, and one of support for whatever the need is that's coming from from the other side. 
I, I think it's quite interesting when we had that discussion, um, just moving right along, about uh, Britt had that really good explanation about how a resource-dependent country like Timor-Leste, where so much of its revenue comes from oil and um, its natural resources, that a lot of the people in the country are not employed or actively part of that that progress or that development, uh, which which makes the government so important or governance. Absolutely, yeah. I, I think that just hits home the importance of looking at the right data, because as as he said in in the interview, in the podcast, he said that it looks like East Timor or Timor Leste is progressing at at quite a rate, but that's just simply based on 60-70% of the GDP is being made up by oil and gas. So it, it was definitely an interesting thing for him to say, well, you have to kind of look at the right data when only 0.1% of the, the population is employed in those industries, You know what the rest of the population is doing. If, if all of government was decided by 0.1% of the population, I, I would argue that that's not a very good government. Although some countries around the Welcome world- Welcome to America. Yeah, in some countries <laughs> around the world, that kind of seems what it is. Yeah, but I guess that's, that's yeah. the idea of democracy. And I'm not sure, is Timor Leste a democracy? Uh, I mean, yeah, I'm not too sure myself. Uh, we probably should have asked. Yeah, and I guess there was an interesting discussion there about the need and appropriation of foreign direct investment in resource-rich but relatively poor countries. It, it kind of seems like they get taken advantage of and they don't receive the benefits of, of what they actually own in some regards. And, and, and I guess that goes to his quote, the best development quote, the key to good development is development that is owned by the subjects of that development. And he also pointed out that this provides a more sensitive approach and, and allows them to really benefit from from what they own not not the people outside even though they may still improve their living standards or social capital or, or whatnot or any good things yeah yeah exactly exactly but he said that at least that way if, if the development is owned by by those that are living in that country then they're able to benefit in the best way possible thank you for listening to this episode of cordial concentrate you can hear the full-length version by heading to Cordial on all major platforms like Spotify by visiting our website and Instagram at cordial.live or simply check the show notes for a link. Otherwise, we'll be back next time with a brand new guest to mix and contemplate more Cordial conversations about the world, their people in it, and their work. <laughs>